Hello, my name is Sarah and I am your chakra coach. On this podcast, we'll be exploring how the chakra system can help guide you to grow your emotional, mental, physical, and spiritual wellness, leading you closer to your highest self. Hi there. How is everything going with you? It's been a little wild in my neck of the woods. You might have noticed that last week I had some technical difficulties. I released an episode only to discover that none of the editing had gone through. No, well, if you heard that and you were confused, well, don't worry, I was too. Uh, But fingers crossed, I've got to fix this week. Uh, Speaking of fingers, that's what we're talking about today, or more specifically, mudras which are positions that we put our hands in to channel certain subtle energies. My guest, Ram Jain, is an expert on mudras and how they're used in a yoga practice, not necessarily a posture practice like yoga on a mat, but during breath work and life to help us adjust the five elements that are present in our bodies. It's really interesting, and he does a terrific job explaining it. And then we wrap up the conversation with some insight into chakras, the energetic plane, and how the energy of the chakras affects the energy of the physical realm. Now, Ram Jain was born in India into a Jain family with rich traditions where yoga has been a way of life for five generations. His formal yoga education started at eight years old at a traditional Vedic school where he studied ancient scriptures, yoga, and Sanskrit. He has been on the path of yoga for the last 34 years and has been teaching yoga for over 23 years. Since 2009, more than 12,000 yoga teachers have graduated from his yoga ashrams in India, the Netherlands, and from uh, their online academy. He's the author of an Amazon bestseller, Hatha Yoga, for teacher as teachers and practitioners that has sold over 18,000 copies in four languages. I enjoyed this conversation, and I, I got to ask questions of a person who I think is, is really fortunate to have been born into the yogic traditions. I hope that you love it as well. Um, and if you do, or if you love any of these episodes, would you mind just real quick going into your podcast listening app and make sure you're following this podcast or subscribed to it and maybe leave a quick rating or review. That will be awesome. Here's Ram Jain on mudras and chakras. Hello, Ram. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. How are you? Hello, Sarah. Thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm doing good today. Thank you. Good. I'm so glad to hear that. So. One thing when I first found out about you that really intrigued me, and we're going to get to this in a second, was uh, you're an expert on mudras, which are hand positions that we use in yoga practice, pranayama practice, but you're going to kind of clear that up for us today. Like, what are they? Where do they come from? What are they for? And I'm so excited to get to this conversation. But before we do, would you mind um, telling me just a little bit about you how did you begin your study of yoga um tell it just tell us a little bit about your your journey yes so sarah uh, basically i started to study yoga formally in school uh i was sent to a vedic school so since age of eight i went to vedic school and there i studied till i was 16 
and uh, yoga it was an anglo vedic school so we had all the english subjects you know like by the british so english math science and all plus we had also the vedic subjects so veda yogas gita bhagavad gita for example or gyan all the different kind of yoga subjects and scriptures we had to cover so all that was part of my formal education and yeah so that's how i know all the teachers were uh, basically they were teachers who were trained to become teachers in these subjects and they were teachers from generations so they were groomed to become teachers in these subjects they were priest caste so the uh, all the teachers were authentic teachers learned from original scriptures in sanskrit so i feel that the information i learned, uh, got from them is quite authentic and direct and so now you're a teacher uh how did you how did you become a teacher of yoga how did you sort of decide that you wanted to take these these things that you learned very authentically from these teachers and then become a teacher yourself actually i became yoga teacher by chance i did not plan to <laughs> <laughs> i did not plan to become a yoga teacher but um, i was uh, earlier i was always practicing yoga it was part of the life but i was not planning to become a teacher of it i was uh, actually a, a dancer and a dance teacher oh but yes but uh, along the way somehow whenever um, i was uh, doing dance yoga came on the way and i had also uh, options to assist and teach and then somehow it just happened i never really planned for it that's so interesting um sometimes i think yeah yoga comes to you rather than you going to yoga yes. can i ask you just a, a question when you say so you said you always practiced yoga because it was part of the the lifestyle do you mean like asana practice like physical postures that we practice that we think of as yoga like when we go to yoga mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i feel like for you there must have been more to it yes of course so uh, you can say in brief we practice the ashtanga yoga the philosophy of ashtanga yoga the eight limbs so of rajyo you know so yam niyam asan pratyahar pradhyan dhyan samadhi so we did all of that uh, not just asan asan is a very small part right and main main focus in our family is on yam niyam so you know ahimsa satya so these principles are very important for you to follow uh, you make your rules for yourself how you are going to follow them and uh, they are followed in two levels because we are householders you know we live in society we have families we have jobs so we cannot follow them in extreme so for example the first principle of uh, ahimsa non violence uh, we cannot do extreme non violence so we will end up doing violence by cooking food boiling water cleaning the house removing the spider web doing the gardening so the concept is that you understand it and you know what violence is you will do how much when required when not uh and then you are always aware of these principles in your daily life monks to extreme so they have no family they have no life you know so, so they don't live in society that's why so they they do extreme non violence and the householder you are always aware what are my yam niyams and what i have to do in that so if there's a spider web how do i do it can i just suck the spider in the spider uh, in the vacuum cleaner also along with the spider web or i catch the spider first put her in the garden and then remove the spider web mm -hmm. if there's a mosquito in the room i'm going to just kill the mosquito or i'm going to catch the mosquito put him out close the window or put some smell or something so yes. you live this principle in your daily life 
Yes. Um, and I would say, I think it's probably reasonable that the majority of the listeners to this podcast are householders and are living, um, uh, you know, an in-society kind of life. And so I just always like to remember for myself and for all of us that yoga isn't a physical practice. It's not stretching necessarily. Like you said, that's a small part of it, an important part and a part that a lot of people enjoy, but there's a lot more to it. So I think um, it's always nice to hear from somebody who experienced that uh, growing up and didn't necessarily have to come to that as an adult, right? It's a very different sort of learning process. So as you learned and practiced yoga, the lifestyle and the postures, and then you started teaching the lifestyle and the postures to people, you, um, I'm assuming, continued your 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 various studies because that's, mm-hmm. you know, a good teacher is frequently a good student as well. And you have become an expert on mudras, which is how you and I connected. What I would love for you to do is explain them. What are they? What are they for? Where did they come from? Who created them, right? Like, I think there's so much, uh, at least on my part, I find I go to yoga class and they say, put your hand in this position. And I think, I don't, okay. And I don't really know why, or am I doing it correctly? And sometimes I feel like the teacher doesn't know why. Um, then that might just be putting that on other people. So what I'm hoping today is that we'll get a little clarification around mudras. Okay, sure. So mudra means gesture. Now, there are different kinds of mudras. There can be hand mudras, hand gestures. There can be eye gestures. There can be body gestures. There can be feet gestures. Generally, when people talk in these days about mudras, they are actually talking about hand gestures. So, but mudra in general terms is much broader. So let's talk today about uh, hand gestures maybe. That's more okay. uh, useful yeah. for the students. So the hand gestures comes from the concepts of five elements, that the body is made up of five elements. And these five elements are earth, water, fire, air, and ether, ether or you can call it space. So the concept is that our body or every living being on earth is made up of five elements combination of earth, water, fire, air, space. So because we are made up of these five elements, our five fingers are also representing these five elements. And the concept is by manipulating your fingers, by controlling your fingers, you can actually increase or decrease the flow of these five energies in the body. Fascinating. Okay, I'm following you so far. That makes a lot of sense. Ask me questions if something is not clear. No, I will. Thank you so much. Um, Go on. So, because these are five elements and there's always energy flowing from the five, we can move around these fingers to control specific energies. Now, when I say specific energies, generally people know them as also five pranas. So, the five pranas basically are udan, which is in above our head. So above our heart, in the area above the heart. So if I'm standing like Da Vinci's man, all the area above my heart is controlled by Udan. Right? Udan is the prana of space. Similarly, below on the heart, we have prana, the energy or the prana which makes the heart beat. That is the prana or the energy of air, element air. 
then we have in our belly the fire in the solar plexus. So fire is the element of energy of fire itself. Then we have uh, Vayan. Vayan is basically three fingers below the belly button, four fingers below the belly button also. That is called Vayan, and Vayan is the energy of water. It is responsible for all the circulation in the body, circulation and movement. Then we have Apan. Apan is basically in our lower intestines, large intestines, in our pelvis. And Apan is the energy of element Earth. Okay. So these are different energies in our body. They have different functions. Udan is responsible for thinking, for seeing, for moving the upper body, hands, yawning. Pran is responsible for breathing. Taman, the fire element is responsible for the digestion and metabolism. Water element is responsible for circulation. Earth element is responsible for all the excretion and the creation of the gross matter in the body like bones, tissues. So when we use the mudras, we are able to manipulate or stimulate certain energies more or less. If something is more, you want to decrease it. If something is less, you want to increase it. So this is the primal concept of mudras. Primarily, there are five mudras. Now there are basic variations which become 10 mudras. So we generally say five mudras primary, like we have seven chakras primary, we have five mudras primary. Then there are further combination of these mudras you can use, but primary five are basically the main five mudras. Everyone should know. Okay, teach us how. So I think, let me just recap for a second to make sure I'm understanding. So. We, we have these five elements present in our bodies and each of these elements um, are responsible, a certain type of energy and they're responsible for certain type of functions in our body. Um, I think an easy one to think of is sort of like digestion, the sort of solar plexus fire area. So if we're having maybe digestive problems or um, something's not working in that area, we would want to increase that pran, that that element and we can use the mudras to to do so yes great okay how do we do that okay. is so, is each element associated with a specific finger i'm just guessing yes. now but you yes. <laughs> tell us yes. more you're right. You're right. You're right. so i will show you um little finger is basically water water okay the ring finger is earth Middle finger is space. Index finger is air. And thumb is fire. Okay. So we start all the way from the coldest, which is water, and we go all the way hottest, which is fire. Oh, that's a good way to remember it. So water. 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 Earth. Earth. Earth space. Space. Air. Air. Fire. fire okay okay yeah. and then now that we know that what do we do with them so now it goes very simple logical mathematical system <laughs> because fire burns everything right if you put air in the fire fire will consume it fire will grow air will go less oxygen will die also will be reused similarly if you throw earth in the fire earth fire burns the earth and fire grows more earth becomes less 
So when you want to decrease something, you are going to add it to your file. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So I want to decrease my heaviness, my sluggishness, my earthiness. So, yes. Yeah. So you will do Prithvi Mudra, which is putting your ring finger to your tip of the thumb. And this is Prithvi Mudra. Prithvi Mudra is to decrease the element of earth. Okay. All right. So that makes a lot of sense. I mean, like you said, this is all very logical and mathematical. This comes from a very long tradition of people who were scholars. Yes. Uh, also used in Ayurveda. Also used in Ayurveda, the medical system. So it is yes. quite a, a logical according to them that it works right. like this. Right. I think it's a lot less mystical than people realize. Yes, um, yes. So There's I think... no mystery about it. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's pretty straightforward. Okay, so that makes sense. So if I need to reduce one of the elements um, that is not fire, I connect my thumb to that element to reduce that. Okay, yes. that makes sense. Go on. So uh, so very simple to remember. If you put jal, so, which is little finger, to the thumb, top tip of the thumb, that is jal mudra. So you are decreasing the cold energy, you are increasing the heat in the body. Oh, that would be good for me. Yes, so that's uh, what you do. You are decreasing cold and increasing the heat. Earth, you are decreasing the gross element, if you want to lose weight or something, and you are increasing the fire. Space mudra, you are decreasing the space in the body. If you have bloating or something, or you know too much mental space, then you are decreasing the space, increasing the fire. Air. Now, this one is very popular one where you yes. put your index finger to your thumb. Reason is because it's element air. And element air is basically the energy of vata, which is basically the energy which creates disturbance and decreases the focus. It makes the mind move. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, air is basically movement. So, when you it is opposite of concentration, you can say. The air element is opposite of concentration. Air is the element of creativity. So if you want to do creativity, then you want more air. If you want to make a painting, if you want to make new music, then air is helpful. But in practices where you want to concentrate, air is not useful. Air brings you outwards. Mm -hmm. So you want to decrease the air. And that's why people do mostly do this mudra, chin mudra, tip of the finger, index finger to the tip of the thumb. Uh, when you face it upwards, it is called chin mudra, like chin. Mm -hmm. When you face it downwards, it's called gyan mudra. Gyan, G-Y-A-N, or J-N-A-N-A. People write it differently also on internet. So gyan mudra. So we keep the palm up in the daytime when the sun is up. When the sun is gone down in the evenings, dark. When the moon is up, we keep the palm down, facing down. And then we call it gyan mudra. Both, they both are basically for improving that concentration. I see. But where it's just responding to the environment that we're in, one is more yes. appropriate than the other. Yes. Okay. So I now understand how to reduce those various elements. And thank you for those examples, because that was very, very helpful. What if I want, what if I need to reduce fire? How does one reduce fire? Very good. If you want to reduce fire, uh, fire is reduced in, see, simple. If you have too much heat in your body, how can you reduce it? Add add coolness, maybe add water. Yes. Add water. Yes. So either add water or actually burn that fire. Okay. So then the fire becomes less. By burning, fire goes less. 
after a burst fire will become less. So it depends on, on what element fire is burning. If you have too much earth, then you will decrease the earth element. If it's too much air, like in the room, if there's no oxygen, there's no fire. So you yes. will remove the oxygen, then there's no fire. Or you will just add coal to it. So you will add the water energy to it. Okay. And if you want to do that, then you will take the thumb and finger and put it at the base of the thumb. Okay. So if I need to <clears throat> increase fire by adding cool, mm -hmm. I put my pinky finger to the base of my thumb. Yes. Fascinating. That, this is so logical. This makes so much sense. Yeah. So that's how you will increase the element. But okay, it depends on which element. Of course, it's a little bit more complicated than just saying put your finger below. You have to think of which element, yes. which you want to increase, which you want to decrease. But that's basically the broadly the basic concept of the mudras. Of mudras. And so... And one thing, uh, the effect of mudras is very subtle. It's yes. not that you are sitting 10 minutes in the earth mudra afterwards, you have lost 500 grams. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I teach mudras in course and people expect very quick results from it. The effect is very subtle and also mostly on the energy body to start with. So that people have to be mindful. Yes, that makes sense. I also now do understand much more why this is such a popular mudra, the index finger to the thumb in uh, a yoga class, right? In my Ashtanga classes, we were always doing that. And that makes a lot of sense um, because we are trying to sort of pull the energy inward as opposed to moving it around outward. So I think that's really uh, very fascinating. No, we want to decrease air because when the air is decreased, fire is a uh, fire is the energy of concentration. So you want to have more fire and air which will dis disturb it, you want to decrease it. And right. that's why. Okay. There's one thing important, Sarah, I, I want to mention for the listeners. I see people doing mudra very differently. Sometimes people are really squeezing their fingers very tight or sometimes they are barely touching it and even distance in between them. The right way to do mudra mentioned is that you are having a very slight active pressure on the tips. Imagine you are holding a butterfly in your fingers. So okay. you are holding her, not letting her go, but you're also not killing her. So there's gentle pressure, both fingers are active and that's it. Not putting too much pressure. This is, I often see people put way too much pressure. Oh, that's very helpful. Um, does it matter what you do with the rest of your hand? Rest of the fingers, it doesn't matter normally. We just keep them together and active, but it doesn't matter so much. You can relax a bit also or keep them apart, but generally they are just kept together. And does it matter if we do it with our right or left hand or is it equal on, right, on both sides? It's equal on both sides, uh, but it depends if you do pranayam. Now, generally, mudras are used in pranayam, not in asana. You can, right. you can if you want, but that's not the idea. Idea of mudras is for pranayam. So now, depending on pranayam, if I'm doing, the, for example, breath work, anulom vilom, so then I will use my right hand because I want to put my right thumb on my right nostril. Because again, right thumb is fire and right nostril is fire. Sure, okay. Left nostril is moon water so i don't want to put my left right nostril on my left yeah yeah right so accordingly you will use the hand so i cannot here use my left hand because then i'm putting my left thumb which is fire on my left nostril which is moon which is water 
Sure. And this is why we use the thumb on the right thumb on the nostril. And then yeah, cold, cold and hot, cold and hot. Yeah, that uh, that again, very logical, very straightforward, sort of once you understand the actual basics, which I'm not entirely sure that we're taught, um, you know, because we didn't go to Vedic schools. <laughs> um, so we're kind of learning as we go along. And so thank you for for sort of sharing your wisdom. I do have one question about a specific mudra that I've been seeing a lot on like the social medias and I'm constantly being showed in um, yoga classes that I just wanted to ask you about. And that's Anjali Mudra, prayer hands to heart center. Um, I feel like there's a big conversation around that right now. And I'd love to just sort of hear your thoughts on the mudra and okay, so tell me what, tell me what you think. Yeah, so basically Anjali Mudra is Namaskar Mudra, Namaste Mudra. So all five together. So I will explain you what is Namaskar Mudra or Namaste Mudra because that's another name of Anjali Mudra, same thing. So five fingers coming together, five elements, energies all coming together and putting in the front of the heart. The It is more of a symbol than actually working, than a working mudra. The okay. idea here is when you are bowing to someone, you put the both hands in front of your heart, which says with all my five senses, my five elements, and my heart energy, I bow to you. Namaskar mudra. That makes a lot of sense. Yes. Rather than a mudra for some specific purpose. It's a, it's a greeting mudra. With all my energies, all my five elements, my being, and my heart, I bow to you. I bow to you. I greet you. I agree. Yeah. Thank you. So Thank you for sharing that. Um, I appreciate that because I've been hearing a lot about that. People are, there's, a, there's always a lot of conversation around these kinds of things. Um, I would love to sort of get your take on, so we, we, you said we typically don't practice these mudras in our physical practice of yoga. It's more within the breathing practices of yoga. Are there certain breaths that should be going with each mudra or does it just depend on what you're trying to accomplish? How does that work? How do we pair the two? Yes. So now when we talk about uh, pranayam, in pranayam, there are two kinds of pranayams. One pranayam, which increases the solar energy. Mm -hmm. One pranayam, which increases the neural energy. And then, of course, there are other pranayams which do both. For example, Nadi Shodhan. Maybe you have seen this one. Sure. Nadi from where Anulom Bilom comes. Anulom, Anulom Bilom is an easier version, preparatory exercise for Nadi Shodhan, which is done for both nostrils because that is a balancing pranayama. It works on our solar and lunar channels. So there we have different mudra. But if you are doing a mudra for solar practice, for example, Ujjayi. Ujjayi pranayama is a solar pranayama. Then what you can do, you can choose a mudra which is going to help to increase fire. So that's why people again will choose for uh, chin mudra because in chin mudra, air is going to increase the fire. So yeah. this, is, this again becomes a common mudra to do in pranayam. If you are doing a mudra where you want to increase the water, then you will do a mudra for water element. Okay. So you, you, you just pair the type of breath with the, the type mudra. of mudra. All right. So that those two sort of practices work together for the um, subtle body and the, the physical practice of the breath and the right. movement of the 
the of the energy. That's very very interesting. Um, you you mentioned something a while back now, but I'm going to circle back to it. And you said you know there are five primary mudras, just like we have seven primary chakras. And your your teachings, what you were taught, and what you teach now about chakras is very different than what we hear a lot of times in the West. And so I would love if you would share with me um, how you approach the, the chakra system. Sure. So now, first thing to understand about chakras is that whatever people see about chakras or read about it or see the images, they are a glorified version or they are mostly artistic versions. So when you see an image of chakra, chakra is not like that. Okay. Yeah, so, <laughs> yes. For example, chakra. Some people say chakra is like a ring. Some people say chakra is like a disc. Some people say chakra is like a flower. Some people say it's like a vortex. Right. So there is a lot of there are a lot of misconceptions about chakras because chakras are in astral body and you cannot see them with physical eyes. There. So so it cannot be verified. Everyone can come up with their own idea about it. Now, what the scriptures say, I can tell you that. Of course, I cannot verify that, but I can tell you what the scriptures say. In our scriptures, the chakras are like a ball. And technically speaking, our earth is also a chakra in our solar system. Okay. That's why it's moving. Yeah. So chakras are small circular balls of energy, which are basically energy centers. So they are energy centers. And they are receiving the energy, storing the energy, and distributing the energy. For example, you have a mobile phone, uh, uh, you know, tower. The tower is getting energy from the satellite, receiving from satellite, storing it, and slowly spreading in the local area at a lower frequency. Because if you connect your phone directly with the satellite, the, the frequency is so high that your phone will just burn because right. it's so much. It's network. not just not designed to handle that level of energy, exactly. that level of frequency. Got it. Exactly. Similarly, our body is not handle is not able to handle this from directly from the source. So the chakras works as energy centers. They receive the energy, they store it, and slowly spread in the local area. When they distribute the energy in the local area is because we tend to we hear a lot about like different chakras have different kinds of energy and, that yeah. do different things. So when it's being distributed in the local area, so let's say the, the root chakra, it's just being distributed in the hips, the, the, the pelvis area. The pelvis area. Um, yes. And what would make a chakra, like your root chakra, distribute more or less energy? Does it do that? How does it... Mm -hmm. How does that, how does it fine tune to what your body needs? Or is that even what it's doing? Okay. So uh, let me uh, just say more about chakras first. Please. Chakra, chakras are first of all present in our astral body. And in astral body, they are present in the astral part corresponding to the spinal cord. So inside the spinal cord, in the energy body, chakras are present. So, which means chakras are very small, smaller than your little finger. Now, chakras, because they are just energy or pran, they are not having colors. Sure. Yes, I have 
I learned that several years ago that the colors were added much later. They might be great to help you organize it in your head, but they don't yeah. technically have colors. It's more exactly. it's more a visualization exercise. Yeah, it's more visual. It's more representation of the element around. So the root chakra is surrounded by the earth element in the base of our body. So then the element color reflex is deep red okay. from the earth, but itself it has no color. Now, because each chakra is distributing these five pranas we talked before on the mudras, so root chakra is spreading apan. Apan is a prana of element earth, and we get it from the food. So when we eat food, earthy food, potatoes, carrots, we get this prana. And this prana is used for the force of excretion. So like when you go to the toilet, when you go to pee, when you vomit, when you're sweating, the pr prana which is used is Upon. So we get this prana and chakra is constantly spreading or when it's needed spreading the prana in the local area so we can do our physical activity there. Now depending on your diet, if you are eating too much earth, then there is a bit blockage in the chakra. You are throwing too much element. Now there's too much, you know, you can say, uh, yeah, too much collection. So the movement naturally becomes less. It's like if you go on the highway and there are too many cars, the speed becomes less. Mm -hmm. For having the right speed, you need to have the right amount of cars on the highway. So same way, if you are eating too bad, too bad kind of food, not right amounts, not right timings, not in the proper way, the chakra will basically be affected and it will be under stress. When a chakra is under stress, people say your chakra is blocked. Technically, our chakras are never blocked. They are only under stress. So they are a little bit slow down or a little bit hyper. Yes, I've heard people say if your if your chakras were blocked, you would be dead because absolutely. So, so that I think that again is like a term people use to sort of wrap their heads mm. around things. But yes, I do think the distinction is important. So, your your energy center is is stressed. It's unable to distribute the energy properly, or it's distributing yeah. too much energy. Is that hyper or hypo? When there is too much, is hyper, hypo, and when it's too less, is hyper. So it's moving too fast. So when it's moving too fast, the person always, so again, each element at a chakra represents a quality. Imagine like this, there's a building with seven floors. On the ground floor, the energy is of survival. Everybody is worried about surviving, like what happens in a world war or something. So they are only concerned about surviving. They don't, they just want to eat food. They just want to have place to sleep and they just want to be with someone. The basic human needs or basic living being needs. Right. So when someone is stuck there, they are only busy with these things. For example, in living beings, animals are stuck there. Animals are stuck at the root chakra. So that's why you will see they are always just busy with eating, sleeping, mating. They don't want anything else. When these three needs are fulfilled, they are relaxed. And again, they think I have to eat because they think they will not get it again. They really need to eat, keep eating to survive. They, they are hyper, in hyper mode. Human beings, we are not in hyper mode. Our basic needs of survival are met. We are not worried about that. We eat food and we chill. We want to have better food and all for taste, but we are not worrying about getting food or uh, other things. So that's how it affects us depending on which level we are stuck at and uh, how energy is moving there, how elements are coming in and out, how is our diet is affecting it, how our sleep is affecting it, how our environment is affecting them, 
how our lifestyle is affecting them, how our thoughts are affecting them. Okay. Now, if there are five elements, and I understand it, they coordinate very well, like root element, earth, uh, sacral element, sacral water, water, and on up. But then I run out of fingers at the throat chakra. <laughs> what sort of elements do I have up at my, you know, the third eye and crown chakras? Third eye and crown chakras are do not having are not having any elements. So physical elements are with five chakras, and mm -hmm. above at third eye, actually, the concept of third eye is that the third eye is our wisdom or awareness eye. So sometimes people say the element is light or sometimes people say element is wisdom, but technically it's not an element. Got it. Elements are only five. Physical elements are only five. So uh, third eye is symbolized also, you will see one single eye, combination of two eyes. The idea is when your third eye is open or in balance, then your dualities, because our two eyes represent duality, like, dislike, sun, moon, positive, negative. So these dualities are merged. And that is third eye awakening. When okay. we say your third eye is awakened or open, we mean that for you, the dualities are over. You are now enlightened. Because that duality is created by the form or illusion or maya. Let's talk for a moment about dualities and being enlightened because I think um, and I've said this before in the show, we we definitely throw that term enlightened around mm. kind of without, I think, too much thought about what that actually means or what it mm. would look like. What mm. are what is your sort of um, what is your sort of approach to enlightenment? And I know there are gurus places that say I can get you enlightened in this lifetime. And, you know, <laughs> and so I would just I would really love to hear sort of your take on that third eye balance and i'm assuming you mean the energy center in your in your third eye is able yeah. to absorb store and distribute energy appropriately and that would be enlightenment yes right. um, so basically third eye center is the center of perception okay agya chakra is mostly written as ajna chakra a j n a but that's uh, a strange reason why it's written like this not going there right now but basically it's agya chakra and agya means the foremost because this is the center of perception how we perceive things are perceived through third eye it is our first point of contact of understanding anything now if uh, it's like this if i'm wearing purple sunglasses everything i see will be purple sure. my perception is impaired to be able to see the truth, I need to to see the right colors. I need to remove that glasses and then my perception is clear and I can see what is there, right? Now, our perception is actually covered by ego. Yes. Ego is attachment to our ideas. So I think it is like this and I believe in that. When someone says, no, it's not like this, I get angry, I get upset, I get sad, I want to prove myself that I'm right, you are wrong. So our perception is covered by ego. And when we remove that ego, we are able to see what is actually there, not what we think it is there. And that is called enlightenment. So removing of ego is called enlightenment. And removing of ego is the letting go of our 
letting go of our thoughts about the way things should be or the way we want them to be or our attachments to things? Is that what you would consider to be ego? Attachment to your ideas. Whatever you think, see, ideas are not the problem, but getting attached to them is a problem. And we always have our ego working. So, you know, if you if you go to some place, if you go to a cafe, immediately your mind says, I like this place in some degree, less, more, a lot, or I dislike this place, less, more, or a lot. Okay. Our dualities are always working. The coffee comes, either you like it or you dislike it in different degrees, of course. Or this is because of our ego working. Our ego is always getting attached to the idea. This is like this. This is like that. I don't like this. I don't like this. It's believing in the form. So in illusion. So that is the problem with ego. Ego is getting attached to your ideas and our ideas are basically completely wrong. What do we know? Our five senses are impaired. We, you know, we can not see far, we cannot hear much, we can, our five senses are impaired, our mind is completely impaired. So whatever we think it is, it's not. Oh, that's fascinating. Because our senses are all we have really to perceive then, but they are so limited, right? Like I can only see what's in this room. I certainly can't see what's in, I, I can't even see what's in my own town, right? Right yes. now. And I'm, even in your room, you can only see what your eyes are allowing you to see. For example, we don't yeah. have infrared vision. So in the night, you are seeing nothing. But yes. someone who has infrared vision, they see everything. So as long as we're using our senses, our perceptions are wrong. Whatever we think it is, yes. it isn't because we simply don't have all of the information. Exactly. We only and... see seven colors, but there are more colors. So now we don't know that and we believe, no, no, it is the truth. There are seven colors. My room is like this. That is ego. Believing in incomplete information. Is ego. So the, would you say the, the I hate to say this, but like the point is to discard ego or it's simply to discard your attachment to uh, the ideas and more of an acknowledgement that we exist in an incomplete picture? Like okay, so um, first thing is uh, discarding the ego. So understanding that whatever I believe is not right. So there's no attachment to the ideas. And same goes then deeper at understanding who am I? Am I this name? Am I this personality? Am I this body? Am I this uh, role I have, I'm doing? I'm a teacher, I'm a mother, my nationality, who am I? So right now, if I ask people, who are you? They always tell their name. They say, I'm a mother, I'm an uncle, I'm a teacher. They are saying the labels because they do not know who they are. Because of the ego, they think these labels which people call me is me because I need an identity. So who am I? Whatever people call me, I'm that. When the ego is gone, the labels are gone, then you become aware of who you are. And that is called enlightenment. In light, where you see yourself. Do you think that's possible for most of us? It's possible. Question is, do we want it? <laughs> that, that actually is an excellent question. <laughs> do, do we really want to let go of all the things that we think make us yeah. us, right? I. Yeah. But you're right. Yeah. I will. I will work with clients and they'll they'll say oh i'll say tell me about you and they'll define they'll explain who they are in relationship to everyone else in their life yeah. right um and so that is really fascinating i have taken this year just on my own personal journey to 
calling sort of that who am I without all of that other stuff, my like authentic self, the part of me that doesn't have stories and ideas from my culture, my upbringing put up, put on it. Mm. And I will tell you, I don't have any idea. <laughs> it has been uncomfortable at times to think about that. Um, so enlightenment may be possible. I don't know about for me, <laughs> at least not now. Yeah, yeah. It's not get difficult to get there. It's just we don't have the desire for it. Yeah, it because it's it is extremely uncomfortable, right? Yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, so when you when you find people that have or in yourself or in your students, people that are having a, a chakra that is hypo or hyper, do you find there are things people can do to? Yeah. To rebalance, do you find that that actually has an effect on their their well-being yes. in the world? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what we do in Ayurveda. So when we find out the doshas, because doshas are also affecting the chakras. So when you balance the doshas by food, by lifestyle, by thought, by activity, then you are also affecting the chakras because they can be affected. If you control the element, if you are controlling your diet, you are controlling your earth element. In result, the chakra becomes more free or more sluggish. So by controlling the elements, your diet. So not only this. Sometimes I see people talking, say, oh, I will do this meditation and my chakra will be balanced. I will do this pose and my chakra will be balanced. It's not like this. For example, if you want to lose weight and be toned, you cannot just do one thing. You cannot just go and do some exercise, but keep eating junk food, not sleep properly, not drink enough water, have all the time stress and lose weight. Not happening. So you have to have the whole complete, well-rounded picture and activity to balance the chakra. But yes, like you can use weight, you can control your chakra, you can make it more free. And do things like meditation i mean i think you were you were saying like that's what we do in ayurveda we do um different foods lifestyle choices is there value in meditation for helping with that energy flow absolutely absolutely it helps but again like i said if i just go one do one thing but i don't do other things they will bring me back it's like a, in a bad posture once i had a lot of a neck pain so i went to physio uh, sorry a manual, th manual therapist he you know open manipulated my cervical a bit the pain was gone next week i had the pain again the problem was because my posture was not good by working on computer a lot i was sitting very badly so he only told he did not say that all of that to me because he was looking only at his part he said come i'll Manipulate it, it will be fine. Muscles will relax, bones will be in place. But due to back posture, I was in back in place. Even in, I think, two days, in fact, not even a week. Same easy. You can do meditation. It's definitely going to help, but not a lasting effect. Unless everything is done. Your diet is maintained, you're thinking positive, you're taking responsibility of your well-being. Only meditation is not going to help. Sure. Sure, if you're looking for a healthy well-balanced body, mind, and spirit. If you wake up and you meditate first thing every morning, that's great. And then you eat nothing but cookies all day and you yes. don't nourish your body with, with the proper vitamins, minerals, nutrients, things like that. You're never going to feel good, no matter how much no. meditation you do, which absolutely. I think is what you're saying. Yes, absolutely. So I love how you've, you've taken chakras, which a lot of times people think of as being very separate from um, Ayurveda or yoga or things like that. And really 
although they exist in the astral body, and like you said, therefore can't be verified, we can't see them on our x-ray machine um, or our MRI, um, but they have a direct effect on the physical body and the physical body, the things that we do in the physical plane affect them on the astral plane. Yes? Yes, it's both sides. It's both, both sides. sides. Astral body affects physical body, physical body affects astral body. Um, for how example, do you feel? Oh, yes, please. My, for example, mind is in the astral body and we have physical body. But if I torture your physical body, your mind suffers. But if also, if your mind is suffering, you see it in the body. That's exactly what I was about to ask is how do you, um, how does our mental state and our emotional state play into these things? Because I think like you can't x-ray an emotion either, but I think to say they don't exist would be absurd. So emotions exist, absolutely. Yeah. So how does that impact our our astral bodies and, and the the energy distribution from the chakras? Okay. So uh, emotions are technically, according to yoga philosophy, are thoughts. So okay. there are two kinds of thoughts. One thoughts are what we see. So when you think of something, if you say you know grapes, immediately you see grapes in some form in your mind. But I, when I say sad, you don't see sad something, but you feel sadness. Yeah, so it's this thought. So what happens is these thoughts give an effect. They create vibration. Now, certain vibrations bring our body into positivity. Certain vibrations bring our body into negativity. For example, when you're going to have argument with someone, you see that your body starts to go into sympathetic and completely changes your breathing changes your blood flow changes your heartbeat changes your start temperature changes so emotional is going to affect the physical body absolutely and if you want to have a healthy body you also need to have a healthy emotional state emotions need to be observed and understood but not get overflowed by people generally Instead of understanding the emotion, okay, what am I feeling by my feeling and leaving it there, they start to get overflowed in it. Oh, I'm sad, I'm this, I'm feeling so sadness, my heart is falling down, sinking down. They get overflowed. Whereas they are supposed to only understand and give it a place. Or people do opposite, they suppress them. They ignore them. They say, I'm not going to care how I'm feeling. I'm feeling sad, but okay. That's for not for me. They ignore it. So when they don't, when they ignore it, then it's also going in the body and getting stored, but not in the right place. You can say. Stored. So if an emotion is sort of a vibration and it gets stored in the wrong place, are we saying that it's like it should be stored in a different chakra? Or what? What do you mean when you say that? In the body, emo see, just, emotions are stored in the body. For example, in, you know, the, in the actual physical tissues. Yes, tissue. Yeah, yeah. Because all the astral body is corresponding in the physical tissues. So, simple water. If you have water collection in your legs, you have problem. Yes. Because water is stored in a wrong place, wrong tissues. So similarly, emotions are stored in the wrong place, they will not go out. But the water is stored in your blood, there's no problem because it will go out from there automatically. Yeah, that's where it's it. supposed to be. But so water you, stored water... in your ankles is, is swelling and uncomfortable. Exactly. So similarly, emotion should be stored in the right place so it can exit with time. But if you stored it in the wrong place, then it does not exit and becomes collected. That is a problem. So that's why 
identifying the emotion, understanding it, giving it a place is important. That was lovely. Thank you very much for um, helping sort of me and everybody listening sort of understand where this fits in with the yoga philosophy. Like, where do we get these ideas from? Because, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of information out there that doesn't necessarily come from your sort of like authentic teachers. So it's nice to hear from you who come to us from a little bit, perhaps more directly from the source, shall we say? Um, what are your thoughts about um, sort of the blending of Eastern and Western philosophies? Uh, I think that's a kind of a hot topic of conversation right now, and I would love to know how you feel. Can you give me an example? I think the chakras are a great example, right? Like we have this Western view of the chakras and we, you know, we're like, oh, they're all little lotus flowers sitting in the body and have a specific color. Um, and that's from your, your, your studies, not exactly how they work, but we've sort of blended these two ideas. Um, and then now we're trying to navigate this sort of globalized philosophy where we're trying to incorporate everything from every thought process into one like unified theory. And I just don't, I don't know how that's going to ever work. And I just love to hear yeah. you talk about that. Yeah. The thing is, sometimes I hear some Western philosophies about some concepts and they're fine. But sometimes I also hear a lot of, I don't know, I can call them philosophy or ideas, which are not technically correct, like calling chakras are flowers, chakras are this, or they are these colors, or, uh, or yin and yang is very common. People say, I'm to yin, I'm to yang, I need yang energy. We have both, both of them anyways in us. So sometimes uh, I would say incomplete information gives us the wrong ideas because the information is not complete. They just are using one side of it, they say chakra has color, but go below why chakra has that color, why we say the chakra has color, how about the color part comes in the chakra because energies don't have colors. So how come the chakra has the color, which is made of energy? So I say incomplete information gives wrong ideas. If people go in detail in, uh, you know, in the roots of it, then they will find the right answer. Yeah. And if we have incomplete information and then we get the wrong ideas and then we get attached to those, that's yeah. where we start to have our yeah. struggles and our imbalances. Okay. I see people sometimes arguing really badly and fighting on concepts which actually are really not correct at all. They are... <laughs> <laughs> well, fight, fight to the end for something that isn't right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I appreciate you being here and sharing all of this knowledge with us um if people want to know more about you or even study with you is that possible can people learn more from you and how yes yes so i only teach now teacher trainings actually since 2009 so if uh, if someone wants to become a yoga teacher then we have a lot of courses the foundation course of course which is our flagship course in india and holland and there I'm giving classes. They can come and do classes with us and learn all the philosophy. We cover everything, chakras. We have very thorough philosophy section in it. And uh, I teach yin yoga classes, teacher trainings also, which is completely by me, the course, most of it. Uh, meditation teacher trainings, we have pranayama. So we have separate courses they can do. They can look at our website, Arhanta Yoga, or they can search by my name, Ram Jain, Arhanta or Ram Jain Yoga. And then they can find me. They can find me on the website and social media. 
So we offer certain courses, but we also offer, of course, a lot of free stuff for beginner people and all, which they can find on our social medias, giveaways, where they can have exercises and write information, yeah, which is free for everyone. Well, that is very generous, and we appreciate that. Ram, thank you so much for your time today. Um, this has been a delightful conversation, enlightening, if you will, has helped a lot with sort of dual perceptions. And so I appreciate that. Um, I hope you will maybe come back sometime and we can continue our yoga philosophy discussion. Um, sure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah, for having me. Thank you very much.